Welcome to another episode of the Word and the Glass podcast, part of the Bar Podcast Network. I am your host, Micah, and I thank you for giving of your precious time to hear this word. I pray that you are edified and encouraged by it. This week, we will return to the From the Pulpit to the Podcast series, where Stefan walks us through some of his more timely and difficult sermons in hopes that throughout the week, you would return to these episodes and be renewed and reinvigorated as you hear the Word of God preached. Preaching isn't just for Sundays. We need the Word of God. We need to read it. We need to hear it. We need to be saturated with it. And this is one way that the Word and the Glass can support you, dear Christian, in that. A word of encouragement before we begin. Be faithful to the Word. Be strong in your faith and find your strength in God to whom we are children through adoption in Christ Jesus. Fear not what this world may do, but continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Samuel 22, 32-34 says, For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer, He enables me to stand on the heights. Please make sure to follow us at the Word and the Glass podcast on Instagram to be encouraged throughout the week and to keep up with everything that we're doing and with all the things that we have coming up. Important side note here. Currently, we have two The Word and the Glass podcast channels where you can go to listen on any podcast platform that you desire or prefer. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, etc. But we are consolidating to one channel. This is a necessary step as we grow and as our listening audience grows, as far as rights and algorithms and so on. This will be a slow process, but as of September 1st, you will no longer be able to find us at the Word and the Glass on your podcast player. You can tell this channel by the white and red emblem, and we will solely be at the Word and the Glass podcast, the orange and black emblem. So please, please go unfollow the old channel and follow us on the new channel. This will ensure that you do not lose us when we switch over permanently. Thank you so much, brothers and sisters, for your continued prayers and words of encouragement. Let's go now to Stefan, from the pulpit to the podcast. Sodom and Gomorrah, part one, Genesis chapters 18 and 19. Today's podcast will be the first part of a two-part series on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in this series, we will look at the kinds of sin the people of Sodom were engaged in, as well as the process in which they arrived at their state, and we'll ask the question, what should we do if, tragically, we find ourselves in a similar society with similar values? That will be part one. And then, in part two, we will complete the study by looking at the many pitfalls that friendship with such a society would bring. We will see what effects such an immoral society has, even on God's people. That is the trajectory of this series and I fear that it will be all too relatable for us. But now, if you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Genesis chapter 18. And I want to jump in at verse 17 and read until verse 11 of chapter 19. So a lot to read here. Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, 
Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose forty-five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of forty-five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men whom came to you last night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? Now, we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, and brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. As we get started today, I want to share with you something that might help us understand the current cultural situation and perhaps help us to apply this text. I want to read an excerpt from a book written in the late 1980s, and this book was first brought to my attention in a sermon by Vodi Balcom. This book, published in 
1989, is entitled After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. This book became the playbook for the LGBT movement in the 21st century. Let me read a bit of this book to you. This will hopefully give us an understanding of what happened to our society. And I say happened because we are now in the final stages looking back on what has been, for the most part, a radically successful campaign on their part. So here's what the book says. AIDS, though a loose cannon, is a cannon indeed. As cynical as it may seem, AIDS gives us a chance, however brief, to establish ourselves as a victimized minority, legitimately deserving of America's special protection and care. That, let me say, was a successful endeavor on their part. The campaign we outline in this book, though complex, depends centrally upon a program of unabashed propaganda, firmly grounded in long-established principles of psychology and advertising. We've been bombarded with this propaganda from every media source, and it's only increasing. The book continues. All normal people feel shame when they perceive that they are not thinking, feeling, or acting like one of the pack. And these days, all but the stupidest and most unregenerate of bigots perceive that prejudice against all other minority groups, for example, blacks, Jews, Catholics, women, etc., has long since ceased to be approved, let alone fashionable. And that to express such prejudice, if not to hold them, makes one decidedly not one of the pack. End quote. So, a crusade has been mounted by the homosexual movement and adopted by the broader LGBT movement to identify themselves with the oppression of other minority groups. And by doing so, they can reimagine themselves, not as those who indulge in sexual perversion, but as the mistreated members of a biologically determined subgroup. Once they were able to adopt this identity, then all that was left was for them to cash in on some of the special protection and care afforded by the American public. That plan was outlined in 1989. And that's exactly what happened. In the 21st century, we saw the meteoric rise of the LGBT agenda, and with it, the invention of erotic liberty as a basic human right. Now, unexpectedly, I'm sure, others picked up on this method and followed suit, until even the LGBT acronym wasn't inclusive enough. And now we have, and I don't make this up, LGBTIP2SQQAPKA. And I'm sure by the time you hear this podcast, there will be other letters added on. And I don't recite that to make fun of it, but just to point out the intersectional contest which has emerged from this movement where victimhood is seen as society's greatest virtue. Because, as we pointed out, victims are the recipients of quote unquote special protection and care. And unfortunately, many Christians have missed the redefinition and the muddling of categories and terms. As a result, they've bought into the lie. But this is where a culture goes, when it abandons God. This is the result of pride and depravity. Man's heart is two things. Proverbs 18, verse 12 says, Before his downfall, a person's heart is proud. And then Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. When man is unrestrained by God, he becomes proud in his depravity. This is a timely message, having just come to the end of what many people call Pride Month, aka June, because that's exactly what we see as the root of the issue, pride. Hosea chapter 13, verse 6, When they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their hearts became proud. Therefore they forgot me, 
God says. The New England Puritan minister, Cotton Mather, once said, Religion brought forth prosperity, and the daughter destroyed the mother. And that's truly what we see here. The moral virtue brought about by Christianity resulted, naturally, in a prosperous country. However, Americans, as happens time and time again, idolized the prosperity and indulged themselves in it. In the words of Hosea, they became full. Their appetites were satisfied, and their hearts became proud, and they forgot God. This is the exact formula that brought Sodom and Gomorrah to this same place. So as we return to Genesis chapters 18 and 19, we first need to see how Sodom and Gomorrah got to this point of moral decline. And then I'd like us to see what our response should be to our own cultural situation. I have three points, essentially, that I'd like to present. They will be, first, the sin of sodomy, second, the Christian message, and third, the Christian reaction with the first point being our primary focus. There will be some overlap with points two and three in the second part of this series. But Genesis 18 and 19 really show us the downgrade process of a society into sin. And these particular cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, were threatening the promise of God. The sin and corruption of these cities in particular, even in comparison to all the other pagan cities around them, put the promise of God most at risk. And this is why we see the special intervention of God here. God is, as he promised, protecting the covenant that he had made. He will not allow Sodom and Gomorrah to disrupt his plan of redemption. And so, he intervenes. But the question I want us to ask is, what made this intervention necessary? What was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? And how did they come to be in such a state? Well, first off, the chief sin of Sodom was the one which bears its name, and that is sodomy. In the modern legal context, there are varying definitions of sodomy, but for our purposes, we will use the definition offered by Nelson's Bible Dictionary, which states, sodomy is a natural intercourse which takes place between members of the same gender. That is what we see displayed in Genesis 19, and so this is how we are going to define it. And as a side note, it's always good to use biblical terms because it connects those terms to biblical definitions. So, for example, when a church group in St. Louis decides to hold a conference whose stated purpose is to support same-sex attracted Christians, but then goes on to entitle a session, quote-unquote, redeeming queer culture and adventure, while also posing the question, what queer treasure will be brought into the New Jerusalem? A lot of clarity could be brought to that conference if they simply used biblical language. Imagine redeeming the culture of Sodom and adventure. Or, what Sodomite treasure will we bring into the New Jerusalem? That changes the conversation altogether. Sodomy is not a trendy cultural niche. Sodom and Gomorrah are not great places to spend summer vacation. They were cities erased from the face of the planet by the fire of God due to their pervasive sexual immorality. Their sins cried out for the destruction. That's what we're told in Genesis 18, verses 20 and 21, which reads, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. It's reminiscent of Cain and Abel. Remember when Cain killed Abel, and Abel's blood cried out from the ground, calling for God's justice? The sin of Sodom called out for God's justice to be done upon them. And so, 
God sends two of his angels to witness firsthand the wickedness of Sodom. As we saw, the angels of the Lord come into the city of Sodom, and Lot invites them into his home. They eat and prepare for bed. It's at this point that we come to verse 4, where we are told, Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them. First, we understand what the phrase to know them means. There are a lot of liberal commentators who try to downplay the corruption here by saying that they just wanted to meet these guys. But we all understand the true meaning. Let's just say that Genesis 4 verse 1 tells us that Adam knew his wife, and the result was she conceived. So the meaning here is clear, and it's identified as a wicked desire. Verse 6 through 7, Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. In Sodom there was not a single man, aside from Lot, who hadn't given themselves over completely to homosexual behavior. We are told that every man was guilty of sodomy that night. In fact, the text is extraordinarily clear how all-encompassing this desire had become among the men of Sodom. The point is emphasized four times in verse 4. First, the men of the city. Then the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. That is significant. And not only is it clear that they embraced sodomy, but they clearly tolerated rape as common practice, right? Rape was common. Every man was there. It was public. They wanted them to be brought out into the town square. And it seems to be legal because there's no one stopping it. Everyone was involved. Sexual sin is pervasive. And what we see here and what we see in our own time is that it has the ability to overtake a culture. This is why Paul warns Christians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, But among you, as is proper among the saints, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. It's too consuming. It's too dangerous. But how does a people come to be in such a state? Do they all simply wake up one day and decide to exchange natural relations for unnatural? I don't think the moral corruption was that sudden. One text in particular leads me to believe that this was a gradual transformation. One sin opened the door for another. And I see this in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excessive food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. This text seems to indicate a pattern of sin which led to its pinnacle, that being that they became an abomination before God, specifically the sodomy displayed in Genesis chapter 19. But look again at the warning signs and the moral downgrade that is displayed in Ezekiel. Sodom had pride. We discussed the close relationship between pride and depravity. They likewise had excessive food and prosperous ease. We've seen how easily that environment can produce individuals with an entitlement complex and a lack of discipline. Tied closely to that is that they don't care for the poor and needy, according to the text in Ezekiel. They only care about satisfying their own physical desires. Then we are told that they became haughty. 
which is simply pride put on display. They want people to know how great they are. They love to signal their virtue. And finally, we're told that they did an abomination before the Lord, which, as we know, was the sexual immorality which became rampant in Sodom. This is the sin profile of the city that God deemed an intolerable threat to his people. And this profile seems to likewise fit the current culture of the United States. Pride may be the most celebrated personal attribute in our culture. We have idolized wealth and envy those who have it. What about care for the poor? Certainly, we have done that. Since Lyndon B. Johnson declared a war on poverty in 1964, $22 trillion have been spent on social welfare programs, funding an ever-expanding government machine, while leaving the poverty rate virtually unchanged all the while incrementally limiting the church's role in charitable ministries and villainizing the capitalist system, which has brought 20% of the world's population out of poverty just in the last 50 years. And I point that out simply to show that as a country, we are operating according to Sodom's game plan, and we're on pace. And even worse, in fact, for we possess and yet neglect the truth of God. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7, and verses 14 and 15 read this, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That is what we are facing. While God may not rain fire down on us tomorrow, though he would be justified in doing so, we know that in the last days he will surely pass judgment upon the wicked. But now, what is the Christian's message to such an ungodly culture as ours? Are we to debate until everyone changes their mind? Until everyone votes conservative? Until all Planned Parenthood clinics are closed? And everyone homeschools? Until marriage is legally defined as one man and one woman? Until religious liberty is fully secured? Those may be things that we really want, but that is not our primary objective. Our primary objective is to change hearts and minds by way of the gospel. Simply changing minds through debate has no guarantees. Even if you're able to persuade someone of your cultural convictions, they are still just as lost and just as damned as they were before. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 gives us a better and more eternal hope, saying, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We hear so often that sexual orientation is immutable. It can't be changed. And then there's another side that says our physical desires are irresistible and there's no alternative but to give in. The Apostle Paul disagrees. He says, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It can, has, and will change people's hearts. And it can, has, and will change people's minds. Your job is to wield it against the sin-saturated world, proclaiming that Christ came to redeem sinners, not just to redeem their Sundays, not just to redeem their morality, but all of them. And he accomplished this by taking the Sodom and Gomorrah-style destruction that you deserve, right, God's unimpeded wrath, and aiming it at himself. He took your sin, your pride, your lies, your lust, your anger, your greed, your sodomy, your adultery, whatever evil you have committed against God, the punishment has been dispensed in full upon Jesus for those who repent and place their trust in him. That message has the power to reconcile a sinful people to God. But what if you're on the other end? What if you find yourself in the middle of a successful LGBTQ plus indoctrination campaign, as we saw in the intro today? What do you do if you are living in such a culture? Do you identify yourselves with that culture in order to be relevant? Do you send your children to be trained by those in the culture? Do you support universities that teach contrary to everything you know to be true? Do you buy into the cultural ideologies which prop up that ungodly system? No. As you engage them with the gospel, you separate yourselves from the sinful culture. You live as though you are in the world, but not of it. Jude chapter 1, verse 20 through 23 reads this. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. We must learn to hate everything that associates itself with sin and sexual immorality. A common theme in scripture is to flee from sexual immorality. Lot, for example, flees from Sodom and Gomorrah. Joseph flees from Potiphar's wife. And Paul commends their actions when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Don't make friends with such practices. Don't give Satan a foothold. Sexual sin is deceptive and compounding. Separate yourselves from worldly influences which lead you into such things. Let Sodom and Gomorrah remind you of the severity of such things. And we'll discuss this further in part two of this series. But as for right now, allow me to do a quick review of what we've discussed. Sodom and Gomorrah were cities within sight of God's chosen people. Their sinfulness brought intolerable danger to God's people. They had downgraded morality from pride to greed to mistreatment of the poor into various acts of sexual immorality, most notably being sodomy. They put their depravity on display as they arrived at Lot's door desiring to rape two angels of the Lord. This crude display of debauchery resulted in the just wrath of the Lord being unleashed on them. Currently, American culture has followed suit with the sins of Sodom. We see various degrees of pride, greed, idolatry, and sexual indulgence of all kinds. Our response must not be with capitulation or friendship with the world. We must utilize the only message that has the power to change the hearts of the wicked. We must proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, in closing, 
we are told constantly that as Christians we must not impose our morality on others. In other words, we can't call people to repent of sin, because moral autonomy is the supreme virtue of today's culture, and at least when it comes from Christians, moral imposition is the cardinal sin. We, however, recognize that they are likewise spreading a morality. It's their own morality, and they make it all too clear that we've broken it. You have not celebrated the virtues of erotic liberty, gender fluidity, and intersectionality, and therefore you have sinned and need to repent by signaling your renewed virtue. The truth is that there are two moralities here. Both people are promoting their own moral system. The only real question is, will you subscribe to the morality of the judge? Will you trust in the word of God? I pray that is where you will find your truth. Oh, how these dark days come and never cease. But your gospel is the light that gives us eyes to see. For your word lights the path before our feet. Oh, how your steadfast promises are only plea. We long for the day. We see you face to face. Oh Lord, don't delay. Oh, how these doubts rush like raging torrents. But you keep us from drowning because your grace never relents. Every morning your mercies are new, you are confidence. Your love is vividly seen on the cross, so we stand with assurance. And we long for the day when we see you face to face. Oh Lord, don't delay. Maranatha, we cry, oh Lord, come, we long for your embrace, to sing your endless praise. It is finished, you have won the war, our debts have all been paid, there's victory over the grave. You have risen, you are reigning, your Inadequate we feel by sin's discouragement But we trust we're forgiven Cause your spirit you have sensed He's been poured out within our hearts To seal our inheritance We have peace that we will live forever in your presence And we long for the day we see you face to face Oh Lord, don't delay Maranatha We cry, oh Lord, come We long for your 
sing your endless praise. It is fairness you have won the war. Our debts have all been paid. There's victory over the grave. You have risen and you're by your blood to everlasting love you have risen you are reigning and you're returning oh Lord come you have risen you are reigning 